The Quiet Carriage, the community radio network show all about books and their authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty. All aboard. Hello and welcome to The Quiet Carriage, broadcast here in Jar Jar Run Country on 94.9 Main FM and across the nation on the Community Radio Network. We have a great episode today for you. I'm going to be chatting with Josephine Taylor. She's a writer with her debut novel out right now called Eye of a Rook, out via Fremantle Press. Let me read to you a little bit about the novel. In 1860s London, Arthur sees his wife Emily suddenly struck down by a pain for which she can find no words, forced to endure harmful treatments and reliant on him for guidance. Meanwhile, in contemporary Perth, Alice, a writer, and her older husband, Duncan, find their marriage threatened as Alice investigates the history of hysteria, female sexuality, and the treatment of the female body, her own and the bodies of those who came before her. And now a little bit about the author. Josephine Taylor is a writer and freelance editor who lives on the coast north of Perth, Western Australia. Her debut novel is Ive Rook, and she is on the phone now. I, I love reading books, and in particular, in particular authors, who expose themselves, who truly wear their heart on their sleeve, and this really hits that mark hard, I felt. How much is fact and how much is fiction here? Yeah, um, my husband keeps asking me that too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's Look, it's like a lot of fiction. It's, it's, there's a lot of fact in there. So um, there are two women in there. There's Alice in uh, contemporary Perth mm-hmm. and Emily in uh, 1860s England. And Alice, the, the, the kinds of experiences they have, I guess, are based on mine. So the kind of pain that they feel, which is is vulvodynia, though Emily never actually has a, a name for her pain, mm-hmm. um, which is part of why I'm so passionate about all this. Um, but, yes, both of them have that. And also a lot of the experiences that Alice has were mine. Uh, so, for instance, that it, the fact that um, her pain came on so suddenly and was so severe and it started in, in a similar way with a urinary tract infection um, and then the length of time that she was really, um, I guess, disabled by the pain yeah. for, except mine was longer than that, wow. <laughs> unfortunately. Um, so I kind of didn't want to make it too difficult for the reader. Uh, And then also the the difficulty being diagnosed, um, just finding somebody who will actually give you a name for what you're experiencing. So for a long time I didn't have a name for it and neither does Alice. And then also the same problems with trying to find treatments that help because there aren't, there isn't one treatment that sort of seems to help everybody, every every woman who has falvodynia. And then um, I did start a support group myself. Um, right. Alice joins the support group. But I guess that the diff, there's a lot of differences as well. So while a lot of her experiences are like mine, she's not like me as a personality in a lot of ways. For a start, she's, she's considerably younger than I am. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, she hasn't had children. I've got two. I have two grown-up sons. Right. Um, she is perhaps more naive than I was at that age. Possibly she's in her early thirties, mm-hmm. um, and she was not. She's not as interested in psychology. I was a psychotherapist. Um, yes. before I developed Valvardinia. So I kind of split off parts of myself into, as you do, into different characters. And I think really in terms of similarities, my, my character is probably most similar to Arthur, I'd imagine, in terms of my personality, who's the, um, the man in the 1800s. Right, right. Because you wrote an award-winning PhD memoir on your condition as well. How much of that informed this how much of it made it in here that was just such a great thing to have done I mean I look back now and I you know I started writing on this around 2003 2004 so it's been a really really long period of time to to actually get to a book at the end but I can see that every step was really critical along the way and the PhD was really important because it gave me such a great opportunity to to devote so many hours to researching the history, uh, as Alice does, the history of hysteria, the history of vulvar pain. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a lot more than she does. Only sort of little bits of my research come into her research, but I wanted to give the reader a taste of some of the history. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so that that was a, it. Took me about four years, my PhD, um, and then I did initially try to get it published, but it was. Um, I think you're, you're just starting a postgrad, aren't you? Yes, I am. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So there's that whole thing of like often with creative uh, postgrads, you've got a creative work and an exegesis. Mm-hmm. But mine was like all bunging together. It was it was a it was really well written and it won several research awards. But it was a hundred thousand word beast of a thing. So mm. um, while I initially tried to get it published, I could see that publishers struggled with knowing what to do with it. Um, one publisher expressed um, considerable interest and said they loved it and that everyone read it and loved it. They were a small but a very, very good publisher, but they didn't usually publish debut memoir. And I tend to lose confidence easily. Um, I don't submit work very often for publication. So I kind of turned away from it a bit and I continued to publish personal essays drawn from it. So I've had about six essays, I think, Published. But what was great about that is that I could then use the PhD thesis as the sort of source material for the novel. Yeah. So it meant that all of that research I'd done could then be, um, you know, source material because obviously you don't want all you don't want a novel to be all research. I had to make I had to be really disciplined about how much I let get into it into the novel. Mm. Um, but it was I, I made Alice's. Um, timeline in the time that I did my thesis because I'd done so much research on Volvadinia, I just didn't want to do any more. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought, well, if I make her in within that timeline, then all the experiences she has will be like I had and will be very, will be, um, have that verity, that kind of faithfulness to truth. Yeah, yeah. And do you find it difficult to write about something that's so personal and, and, and so confronting? Um, I guess I'm, I'm really, look, I'll answer that, but I'm actually really interested in your response as a reader as mm-hmm. well. But um, I did initially um, with my thesis, and again, I think that's 
why I also feel that the thesis was just so important for being able to do this, to be able to write this, something so, as you say, confronting and personal. I think I've had Volvodinia for so long now and I've initially, when I used to present on it for my PhD, I used to feel really embarrassed and a bit ashamed and sort of humiliated, uh, particularly if there were men in the audience. I'd feel really, I'd really have to kind of um, <laughs> gird my loins and, um, you know, really uh, muscle up and kind of uh, just do it. But I'm finding more and more what, what's happened is I've never had one negative response and I've had so many people thank me. I've had so many people come up to me after, usually after presentations to say, my daughter has that, I think my colleague has that, I'm wondering if, have you tried this? I've had, I have this too, have you tried this? So I guess for me it just made me feel confident and assured in what I was doing. And I knew that I had nothing to be ashamed of. It's a bit like kind of... I was talking to my husband about it the other day and I was saying, look, calling vulvodynia, it's a pain disorder that happens to affect your sexuality from where it is. So I don't consider it really a sexual disorder as such. It's a bit like saying if you've got um, migraines that you have a thinking disorder mm. or if you have corns on your feet that you have a walking disorder. Um, it's So I sort of feel like it's kind of just in that part of my body um, so why? The other thing, Paul, is that I just got really angry that that nobody knows about this and yet yeah. so many women have it, not as badly as um, Alice and Emily have it, thank goodness, but up to between 10 and 25% of all women will experience some form of vulva pain or discomfort lasting three months or longer at some point during their lives. Wow. So we're, look, we're millions, millions and millions of women. And yet people don't know, people who haven't encountered it don't know about it because women don't talk about it. That's fine. I understand privacy. But the issue then is that you don't get the right treatment. You don't get diagnosed quickly and then you're treated in ways which make the situation worse. So I guess... I'm I'm a writer, I'm a novelist, but, yeah, I did have a bit of an agenda here in kind of really wanting to kind of uh, correct something that to me just seems so ridiculous yep. and so inefficient and so much of a kind of um, hangover from the past, from Freud and from the history of hysteria and so on. So... So, and I throw that back at you as a reader. Did you did you find it confronting to read then? Not at all. I probably found it confronting. I sort of looked at it at, from a writer's perspective, and that's yeah. how I would find it confronting. But from a reader, um, no, I didn't. But as a writer, I'm not sure if I could have if I'd be strong enough to yeah. to to do that. And that's what I really took over i thought it was yeah amazing from that because I, as you say it's such a necessary text to put out in the world i haven't read a book like this and no yeah well look i'm glad it's not too confronting um i mean i know that that people are affected by it but they also feel that it's really important at the same time so that to me says that you know i'm i'm glad that i did it 
I think, yeah, like, so that, that long apprenticeship meant that it wasn't as hard for me as a writer. I've got to say, though, when I'm writing the most difficult scenes, like the part where Alice is really, really at her lowest point, mm-hmm. that was hard to write because it tends to bring the pain up, you know, sort of just you're stressed and tense and and I don't know how these things work, but my pain would increase at those times. And I know that some people who've read it who, who have pain conditions or who have had pain conditions have said that they've they've felt worse as they read read it. Really? Um, yeah. I mean, I guess the good thing about that is that they can close the book and walk away from it. You are listening to The Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM and the Community Radio Network. And now we'll return to my interview with Ivor Rook author, Josephine Taylor. There's a lot going on in this novel, and I think it's amazing how you fit it all in to 200, I think it's 220 pages, at such a manageable pace as well. I mean, there's, there's chronic pain, like we discussed, and the wider impact it has. There's also marital issues, and there's also women's suffrage as well, and a lot more. How long... Was this with you inside your head before mm-hmm. you put it on paper? I mean, what what was your sort of process here? Mm. I'm I'm glad that there's that it that it works because it's eighty thousand yeah. words because words because people sort of said debut novel you can't do it too long eighty thousand yeah, so I thought okay eighty thousand you're right it's got two timelines in it it's got three narrative threads yeah. you know it's got a lot going on. Um, and my fear was that it might be a bit jerky or jumpy and that I couldn't get uh, um, readers to uh, empathise enough with the characters. But I think that because of the level of the emotion that the characters are feeling, hopefully that draws people in. So I'm glad that it kind of, I'm glad that it works. But what happened was I didn't really plan it as such. What I'd been, I'd been um, researching Isaac Baker Brown, who's the real life surgeon in mm. Iverrook, and he um, was operating on women in the 1860s. So he was, it was all very much based on fact. So I researched him for a number of years, including really getting his a copy of his a very sort of fragile old copy of his book with a with a handwritten de- dedication from him inside the cover, um, and I I worked I wanted to work out who the dedication was made out to and so on. I just got very very involved in that, but I didn't plan a novel. What happened was that I was at a writing workshop. I never written fiction before Um, and I was at this workshop and uh, we were given a writing prompt and literally suddenly there's this scene there's uh, Isaac Baker Brown there's this man who's talking with him I realized that they're talking about the man's wife the man's name is Arthur Mm -hmm. Um, I'm like okay (laughs) (laughs) so I just kept writing it and that then and then Alice, I sort of thought oh, I need a, a modern um, couple to sort of counterbalance this and to show that things actually haven't changed that much in a lot of important ways. So then Alice and Duncan are in are in the car. Um, I think so. What happened was that became a short story, um, which was published by Peter Cowan Writers Centre in Joondalup in an anthology called um, Other Voices, and then. Um, 
and then it changed quite a bit, but it became the first chapter of Ivor Rook. So that first right. chapter, that part with Arthur and Isaac Baker Brown, that was kind of how that came to me. And really then I just couldn't walk away from it. And that was in 2013. Right, yeah. You covered about five of my questions there, which is one, which is wonderful. <laughs> I had a, no, that's good. It's I good. can go into I can go into more detail about any one no. of those if you like. No, it makes my job easier. That's good. Uh, <laughs> well, here's one you didn't cover: um, the title and yeah. where the the rook, the crow connotation came from. What was your What was your idea there? What was your focus there? Yeah. Um, initially, the, um, the the work in progress was called um, Silk Purse mm -hmm. because there is a silk purse that features and it was yep. just a very, I guess, um, neat metaphor for female genitals and Freud and so on. It brought all that in. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then I thought, well, I'll, I can link these two timelines through this silk purse and so on. Um, but it just felt a bit obvious to be honest, a bit, a bit too kind of clunky, a bit obvious. So um, what I was doing around that time was I was um, reading Tom Brown's School Days, which is a book that was written in the 1800s and is set at rugby school, which is mm -hmm. where Arthur, the character in the 1800s, goes to school. And in that, he talks about the rooks that circled the rook tree outside the headmaster's window. Mm -hmm. And so I quite liked this and I spent a lot of time on those first two chapters of Arthur's childhood, his childhood and then him as a teenager. And I got stuck in those for a very, very long time. But the good thing about that was that I really got to know Arthur really well and I also, these rooks, yeah, just kind of came to life. Then they started spontaneously cropping up in, my, mm. in the writing. I think there's one chapter where he has his black barrister's cape on and I'm thinking that would be like a rook yeah and so I finished the chapter with that image so the rook just started to come up and and then I started to do it a little bit more consciously I guess as a bit of a reflection of where Arthur was at but the other thing about it is it's also to do with mothering and motherhood and um, that relationship because Arthur when he's at rugby school collects um, eggs yeah and he collects uh, rook eggs, including rook eggs. And at a certain point, he, he sees himself reflected in the eye of a rook. Um, so what I was what I was doing with the rook? Oh, that's that. So I so I called it rook. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then I get to Fremantle Press, and they're yeah, wonderful, wonderful. But you can't call it rook. There's mm -hmm. too many rooks around. So I went back to it and I saw this scene, the, uh, the, the fragmentary kind of image of himself, and I just thought, oh, okay, I can kind of um, I can think about this more. And it made more conscious to me what, what happens. Um, uh, Alice, when she's researching her pain, so starts to think about having two bodies. There's the body that you see which is symmetrical when you look in the in the mirror or in the gaze of other people or when you look at other people. And then there's the body that's fragmentary, it's formed by sensation, like a baby mm -hmm. forms a sense of its own body. And I thought, okay, this this 
reflection is also like that. It's about how do you make things that are very fragmented, like in Arthur's life and Emily's life, mm -hmm. in Alice's life, how do you make things that are fragmented whole? How can and so I, I won't go into sort of exactly how they're connected, but creativity becomes very important and and sort of I guess um, dovetails into the eye of a rook, into rook, the rook and what the rook carries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, yeah. I know you were a psychotherapist before you had a chronic condition. And I was interested to know how much being a psychotherapist informs your writing, because I'm I'm pretty jealous of that qualification in terms of being a writer, because I imagine it does so quite a lot. Yeah, thanks. I think you just got to get to an age though where you've had the time to do all these things. <laughs> right. So yeah, it it is a really good background. It's it's a fantastic background. You know, look, I did um, a degree, an honours degree in um, English lit at um, the University of Western Australia back in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. And at the time I was doing psychology as well and I really was going to these two different classes and thinking, well, what I'm studying in English is actually more about psychology than psychology. The psychology at that point was very much sort of raps and stats and mm -hmm. behavioural psychology. So I found that the psychology that I was learning about when I was studying um, literature was more to my taste. It was about human nature, what makes humans, what what are humans, what motivates them. Mm -hmm. And that's so beautifully um, found in, in literature. So um, then when I, I spent many years in, in Jungian analysis, which is a form of depth therapy, and then I trained as a psychotherapist. So that was fantastic. I actually graduated formally on the week that I developed my symptoms. So I've been in practice for a couple of years, I guess, mm -hmm. um, in training as part of training and supervision and so on. But, yeah, so it all kind of happened at the same time. The great thing, I think, is that it's just it's a part of me, that psychological background, because of all the years that I've put into psycho psychology, psychotherapy, human analysis. Um, so I don't even really know how to think about things any differently but I'm sure that it's really really helpful but I don't know you and you'd probably know this too I think a lot of writers are natural psychologists yeah yeah I think you have to be yeah I I um loved so many passages in the book and there was one in particular about rot nests where I used to visit as a child and it brought back so many memories for me. Do you mind if I, I actually I haven't actually done this before on the show, but do you mind if I actually pick it out? I'd love you to read that. And I'm so glad you like it. I spent a lot of time because I liked <laughs> Rotness too. And I really wanted to try and create it. Yeah. Well, this is uh, page 207. Alice stepped towards the veranda, the squawking of gulls and the ocean's heave filling her ears, her feet squishing remnants of a conifer. Toes rubbing the old needles into the warming sand and massaging them back to life. The resinous scent brought rottenness with it. The hairy, pooey scent of quokkas. Bathers, stiff with salt, rubbing red. The stinging welt of a stinger and the pungent slosh of vinegar. Steamy, buttery bakery bread. Mum sipping an adult drink, gazing out over Fay's Bay. Somewhere, fish being fried. 
I just well, I I loved so many lines and and paragraphs in it, but that in particular stood out for me. And, and I wanted to ask. I mean, you were a psychotherapist before. You're on a literature path now. How how happy are you? Well, what do you, how do you feel about how your career has gone? How you've ended up? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Oh, look, I was devastated when I had to stop working as a psychotherapist. I only, I stopped initially, um, you know, like temporarily, and then I had to stop completely. And that was just like for a few years, I was just devastated. I felt like I was in shock for a few years, um, and I was in so much pain. It's a bit like being in an accident or something, I guess. Mm. Um, but gradually, as I started writing, as I began researching, um, it started to change things and started to give value to what I was experiencing and, and had experienced. I think I spent about the first 10 years fighting the vulvodynia, a bit like um, Alice does as well. She really fights against it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of realised that... I had I kept waiting to go back to who I was before and I was determined to go back to who I was before. I just was determined that this thing was not going to beat me. But then I had to, because it just wasn't going away, I had to change my attitude. And I so what happened was I started following where it took me mm-hmm. instead of fighting it. And so it took me to a PhD which then took me to um, a fairly heavy sessional teaching load at um, Edith Cowan University in, in writing um, for and, and um, Australian fiction. I did that for probably about four or five years. Um, and that was fabulous. And, again, I would never have done that, you know, how did I end up in this spot? And then I... Um, uh, the, the position at Westerly was advertised. I wasn't necessarily going to apply, but um, you probably know Fionn Murphy. Uh, she sort of said, "Joe, this would be ter- this is perfect for you." She's at um, she was at Edith Cowan University, okay. one of the writing lecturers, um, and so I thought, okay, you know, I, I'll just be myself, and if I get it, I get it, and I did. So I've been um, associate editor at Westerly now since August 2017 and I've now have Daniel Jukes as associate editor alongside me and that's been amazing. And now this book, this book. Mm. So none of these things would have happened. I would never be doing any of what I'm doing without Valvardinia. So I really think that um, I'm not, I, I, I don't know about... Happy, I don't know. It's a funny word. It is. I'm, I'm satisfied. I think, and I'm going to just. It's taught me a lot about how to deal with life and how I knew that you couldn't control what happens to you in life in a lot of ways. You know, intellectually before Valdinia, but it's made me understand that over and over, and that the things that you think are the worst things in your life can actually sometimes bring you the best things in your life, and vice versa. That was Josephine Taylor there, the author of Ivorook, out now via Fremantle Press. And that is all we have time for today, unfortunately. We don't even have time for a song. Please remember, you can listen to all previous episodes on Spotify and all good podcast platforms. Until next time, keep reading. <laughs>